0: Good morning and welcome to cross point coast again i 'm mark Schlador. i 'm an elder here at cross Point Coast and I feel like a baseball player like I get my own sound when i when I come out to, to hit. Um, I think that was a technical glitch, but i 'll take it um, yeah one of the one of the privileges of being an elder is that you get to preach and one of the things I like most about leading up to that is the um, Encouragement that I received from my brothers and friends in the time leading up to that. Um, my two brothers were just back there praying for me while we were singing. Um, this morning I got a text from John Menton and his family all the way in South Africa. How cool is that? That somebody halfway around the world, I don't even know what time of day it is over there, but it's probably not convenient, that they're actually praying for me. Um, so we are, if you've been... Out of the loop, we are in the middle of a series on Esther, hence the banners. Um, And it's a nine-week series, and we're into the third week of it. And we're going to talk a little bit about what has come before, but I want to put it in some context um, because all God's Word is there, first to bring glory to Him, but second because it's there for us to learn something from. Okay? So just over a decade ago, Brevard County enjoyed unparalleled prosperity. Some of you remember that. Home values climbed steadily upward. The sizes of new houses grew exponentially. Business starts skyrocketed. Flush with income, local municipalities and the school system invested in improvement and enrichment projects. It seemed as though the money would never end. Statistical data pointed to an ever-expanding economy providing wealth and opportunity for everyone. No dream seemed too big. No itch felt like it needed to be left unscratched. We felt as if we were in full control of our destinies. We were wrong. By 2008, the United States, along with the rest of the world, had become immersed in one of the worst economic crises since the Great Depression, And everything changed. We're still feeling it. Thousands lost their homes to foreclosures, retirement funds disappeared, businesses closed, and thousands more were thrown out of work. Most of us didn't see that coming. In our series on the book of Esther, we find parallels to our own lives, our own culture. But most importantly, we find answers to questions about a sovereign God who presides over His creation and where nothing, not even the most minuscule detail, escapes His notice. We find answers to questions about how God works to preserve His people and bring glory to Himself. Now, the book of Esther is set more than 100 years after the Babylonian exile of the Israelites from their land. While some of the Jews had returned to rebuild Jerusalem, many had not. So the book of Esther is about a Jewish community living in the Persian capital of Susa. The story begins with a Persian king named Ahasuerus throwing two elaborate banquets, two elaborate feasts that lasted a total of 187 days. It took him that long to show off all of his stuff. That's essentially what this was all about. On the last day, the king demands that his wife, Queen Vashti, attend the party so he can show off her beauty in front of a bunch of people who have been partying for 187 days. She refuses, and the king, upon counsel from his royal advisors, issues an edict banning Vashti, while at the same time letting women of the kingdom know that defying male authority will not be tolerated. After returning from a failed military campaign against Greece, King Ahasuerus misses his wife, and he orders that the beautiful virgins of the kingdom be brought to to him so that he can install a new queen. In chapter 2, we meet Esther and her uncle, who's also her guardian, named Mordecai, and they are both Jews living in Susa. Esther is one of the virgins that's rounded up for the king's beauty pageant. It's a fourth beauty contest. She's rounded up and put into his harem. And eventually she becomes chosen to be the new queen. In this chapter, we also learn that Mordecai's family had been taken into captivity by the Babylonian invaders who had sacked Jerusalem nearly a hundred years earlier. We also learned that Mordecai is descended from Benjamin, which becomes a key detail in our, in our understanding of the passage today. So turn your Bibles to Esther chapter 2, and we're going to begin at verse 19. Yeah, I know I probably mentioned that we're in Esther chapter 3 today, but as Matt Hardy pointed out last week, all Scripture is God-breathed, but the chapter breaks were added centuries later so that we can better navigate the bible so sometimes those chapter breaks disrupt the flow and this is one of those times so we're looking at esther chapter 2 beginning at verse 19 if you don't have a bible if you look around on one of the seats next to you you'll find one if not under your own seat and feel free to mark up that bible you can take it home with you if you don't have one esther 2 beginning at verse 19. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. Her Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. At this And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told it to the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. Chapter 3. After these things, Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Heavenly Father, we thank you For the truth in your word. And we thank you that in your loving kindness and perfect wisdom, you have crafted your word to give us a glimpse into not only your holiness and justice, but also into your mercy and grace. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit by whom your love has been poured into our hearts. And finally, we ask that as we open your word this morning, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, so that we might better understand the passage, that it also might bring comfort to us and glory to you, as we seek to follow you and become salt and light to those around us. We pray these things in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Esther is an unusual book in the scripture in that God is not mentioned, not even once. Now that should strike you as odd. Because after all, the Bible is the authoritative book on God. But an anonymous author is using a brilliant technique as an invitation to read this story, looking for instances of God's behind-the-scenes activity. And as we will see and have seen so far, there are far too many of them to chalk up to coincidence or chance. It's also important to keep in mind, as we read Esther, that the story unfolds over the course of more than 10 years. At the end of chapter 2, we find that one of those instances of God's providence, which later turns out to be a key point in the story, Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate and just happens to overhear a plot to assassinate the king. He relays the information to Esther, who relays it to the king. The accusation is investigated found to be true, and the traitors were hanged on the gallows. While the incident was recorded in the official court records, Mordecai receives no formal recognition for saving the king's life. That's a bit odd, particularly in Persian culture. So we've begun to study today, as I said earlier, in, at the end of chapter 2, because there's a connection to be made here. The overall context of the story beginning chapter 3 feels a bit jarring because a new character, Haman, is introduced as being installed in the second highest position in the kingdom after we've just learned that Mordecai had valiantly saved the king's life and went largely unnoticed. The juxtaposition of those two events contributes to the drama that's about to unfold Because not only does Haman ascend to position and authority, he does so seemingly at the expense of Mordecai. To make matters worse, Haman is introduced as an Agagite, which holds significant historical implications to this story. It's important to note that early in chapter 2, Mordecai is introduced as a Benjaminite. And here Haman is introduced as an agagite because the coming conflict between the two of these men is rooted in centuries-long history of animosity. Apparently, the command to bow that's been issued here pertains only to those in the king's court. The king commands officials at the king's gate to kneel and pay respect to Haman. Now, Tim Keller notes that that's kind of an interesting thing in and of itself because people have to be commanded to honor Haman. And in Persian culture, that was a given. So that might speak to Haman's character. We also need to point out that while Mordecai refuses to bow, it's not a similar situation like the one we read in Daniel last year, where Daniel's friends refused to bow to the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. In that case, Nebuchadnezzar declared himself God. Jewish law and custom forbids the worshiping of false gods, but there's nothing anywhere in their history or law that prevents them from bowing down as a form of respect to those in authority. From the text, we can surmise that Mordecai's motivation, we can only surmise... Mordecai's motivation to rebel. One of the things about Esther is it's pretty vague on what makes the characters do what they do with the exception of Haman. And we're going to get to that. Some theologians suggest that Haman's promotion caused resentment in Mordecai because Mordecai deserved the promotion. But as many as five years have passed between Mordecai's revelation of the plot to kill the king and the lifting up of Haman to second in command. So that might not be the primary reason that Mordecai doesn't bow. In fact, his reason for not bowing is not even immediately apparent to his colleagues because they repeatedly ask him to explain himself. Why aren't you bowing? But he ignores them. One thing they do learn, however, is that Mordecai is a Jew. So they report his behavior to Haman to see if Mordecai, and by extension the Jews, have some kind of special exemption from the king's command. Haman's reaction seems a bit extreme because not only does he want to destroy Mordecai for his act of defiance, but he hatches a plot to wipe out every Jew in the kingdom. That's a little over the top. I mentioned earlier that these men are members of nations who had been at odds with each other for centuries, and we can find the root of that racial conflict in Exodus 17, where the Amalekites, from whom the Agagites are descended, become the first nation to attack the Israelites upon their deliverance from Egypt. A battle ensues, the Israelites win the day, and God curses Amalek. Here's what he says to Moses. This is God speaking. Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So this is a a long, drawn-out conflict. Later in Deuteronomy, when God's codifying his law... In his covenant with Israel, we read, Remember what Amalek did to you on your way out of Egypt. He attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies around you in that land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget Finally, in 1 Samuel, we read about how God rejected King Saul, a Benjaminite, same as Mordecai, after Saul disobeys God in not wiping out Amalek and its possessions instead he elect to keep the plunder and hold the king as a spoil of war. That king's name was Agag. Agagites. Later in the story, Agag is executed. And from generation to generation... The conflict has continued. In fact, over time, the name Amalek has become synonymous with any existential threat against the Jews who have identified the name Amalek with Hitler, Stalin, and most recently, Iran and ISIS. Remember, God said, you shall not forget. So Haman likely descended from Agag but not necessarily. Either way, the original readers would have understood the characterization as a clue, introducing another episode of an age-old conflict between Israel and the powers that sought to destroy her. They are God's chosen people. God's promise to protect Israel and to be at war with Amalek in every generation was given within the context of the Sinai covenant. It's foundational, this promise. So the Jews in Esther's time had seen their people reject that covenant. Covenant has two sides, right? Which led to a 70-year exile in Babylon. So one of the key questions on their minds would have been, could the Jews expect God to be faithful to His covenant when they had failed to keep theirs? It's a good question for us to ask, isn't it? In other words, was the covenant between God and his people still in effect, particularly for those who stayed behind in Persia while some of the Jews went back and did the heavy lifting of rebuilding the city of Jerusalem? Was the covenant between God and his people still in effect? It's easy to see why they would be asking this question in light of Haman's genocidal plot that's about to unfold. So when Haman finds out that Mordecai is a Jew, his vindictive, murderous rage expands to include all the Jewish people in the Persian Empire. Functionally, that's all the Jews in the world. It seems Haman has has set out to reverse God's curse on Amalek. But we'll see in this as the story unfolds that our God is faithful. Now that we know the historical motivation behind Haman's reaction, perhaps looking into his personal motivation can provide more insight and actually some application for us. Haman is the only character in Esther whose motivations are clear. He's a proud man who demands respect. A proud man who demands respect. In spite of this great power and position, Haman doesn't get the respect he thinks he deserves. Haman finds no satisfaction in all that he has. He's one of the wealthiest people in the kingdom. In all that he's become, he's second in command. He's been elevated above all except the king. He finds no satisfaction in that as long as one man, Mordecai, won't bow. And his pride won't let it go. C.S. Lewis calls pride a ruthless, Sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. A ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. With pride, nothing matters in life unless you feel good about yourself. Pride turns everything in in life into a means to an end, getting more respect and more approval for yourself. Am I getting the recognition I deserve? How do I look? Do people respect me? Consider how firmly embedded these values were in the ancient Persian culture where power, position, wealth, and physical beauty were exalted, and how firmly they are embedded in ours. Keller points out that the character of pride comes in two forms. Superiority, the usual way we think of it, And inferiority, where you're down on yourself, always feeling self-conscious. And we might not think of inferiority as a form of pride, but it is. You see, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Not caring about respect or approval. A humble person isn't needy. Rather, he or she is interested in others because a humble person has set self aside. We all struggle with pride. In fact, right now, you're probably thinking of someone else who could stand to hear a sermon on pride. And why are you thinking that? Oh yeah, pride. I'm okay, but that other guy? Hmm. He should be hearing this. This is good stuff. Now, some of you may have recently read a story in the paper where a Midwestern family went on vacation in Mexico and mysteriously died in a hotel room down there. And there was an investigation, and it turns out that the pilot on the water heater, a gas water heater, went out, and the family was asphyxiated. A tragic story. Keller calls pride the carbon monoxide of sin. Because unlike other sins, you don't realize it's there, and yet it's deadly. Now think about it for a minute. We're not often surprised by our other sins. I just killed that guy. How did that happen? There's an extra $30,000 in my bank account. I must have worked really hard this year. Those are pretty obvious. But pride sneaks up on you. In this passage... Pride in himself and his ancestry leads Haman to become so enraged that he seeks to destroy all the Jewish people. Throughout Scripture, pride is deadly. It goes before a fall. It leads to destruction. Pride makes you a fool because in general, it keeps you from learning from your mistakes. Pride either causes you to cast blame on others for your mistakes from a position of superiority or... It causes you to give up after your mistakes from a position of inferiority. Pride has long been regarded as a root of sin. It can lead to bitterness, abrasiveness, materialism, paralyzing shyness, racism, nationalism. The list goes on and on. And some of the worst forms of pride can stem from religion. Religion often does a good job of killing off the other forms of sin only to replace them with the urge to express and live out either superiority or inferiority. I'm glad I'm not like that poor sinner. Or why would God love me? I'm so bad, I need to work harder so that he will accept me. This is who we are. This is who we are. But let's compare our prideful ways with the character of Jesus who provides us the ultimate example of humility. In Philippians 2 we read, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The ultimate authority, the ultimate authority, God himself set aside his rights to step into this broken, messed up world and gladly laid down his life for you and for me. We can't begin to grasp this without being humbled. It's not possible. What does it matter if others hold me in high regard or even if I hold myself in high regard when my affirmation is found in the saving grace of Christ? If you can see Jesus this way, you don't have to be all about yourself. And you won't be down on yourself. Now, Haman was all about himself. And his pride leads him to devise a cunning plan to purge the kingdom of the Jews. Let's continue reading, beginning at verse 7 of chapter 3. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that if they be destroyed, I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may be put into the king's treasuries." So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, do with them as seems good to you. Verse 12 Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month in an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written in the king's, to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers were hurriedly, went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. At a similar point of despair, the prophet Jeremiah wrote the following Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? I bet you've asked yourself that question before. And that's certainly a reasonable question to ask, given what is about to unfold. Haman sets out to skillfully manipulate the king. He begins by bringing an accusation, certain to arouse the king's attention. There's a specific group of people who don't obey the king's law. In reality, it may have been that the Jews observed some distinct customs, even in Persia. But only Mordecai has refused to obey the king, and then only one specific command, to bow down to Haman, who carefully avoids mentioning that these people are Jews. And apparently the king isn't all that interested in which people are being singled out anyway. It seems like this will somehow profit the king, so make it so. In another selling point, Haman promises to enrich the king's treasury, which has been depleted in a war with Greece. The money likely would come from genocide-generated plunder. As in chapter 1, King Ahasuerus gets bad advice from a bad source. Mirroring a similar dynamic set up in the Vashti episode, from which he apparently has learned little. In both cases, the day-to-day lives of the empire become disrupted by counsel from an advisor who not only demands respect, but fears the absence of it. Now, to determine the optimum time for the attack against the Jews, Haman and his spiritual advisors consult the Pur, or Lot. We would recognize Pur as dice. This is probably a good place to inject that the Pur is how we get the name of the Feast of Purim, which is celebrated by Jews. It is based on this story of Esther. That's what they're remembering. So it's an important element in this story. The Pur was an object of divination, divination used by many Near East cultures, including Israel. Haman cast the Pur in the first month of Nisan, not coincidentally, the month celebrate Passover, the month the Jews celebrate Passover. It falls on Adar, the 12th month. So Haman has to wait 11 months for the favorable day to attack the Jews. That also means the Jews have to wait 11 months anticipating this horrible thing that's about to fall upon them. Immediately he sends out his decree, however, sealing the fate, and that decree goes out on the 13th day of the first month, which ironically, ironically, is the eve of Passover, which commemorates God's delivering the Israelites from Egypt. This is what the purr decided. All decided by a toss of the dice, right? R.C. Sproul writes that if there is one single molecule in the universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God's will a single promise of God, will ever be fulfilled. Let me say that again. If there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God's will ever be fulfilled. Our sovereign God has control over the most seemingly random things in His creation. I'm a high school teacher. My students love to say, that's so random. It's one of their things. But you know, it's not. Nothing, not even the numbers that come up on a rolled dice, escape God's notice. That's pretty random. Nothing catches him off guard. In Psalm 16, David writes, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. When he writes that, he's alluding to Joshua's division of the promised land among the tribes, 12 tribes of Israel, because they cast lots to do that at God's command. What David is saying is the Lord has secured his destiny, not those dice. He later adds that the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. So Haman cast the purr to secure a date for the successful annihilation of the Jew. But it was God who determined how that purr fell. The fateful date has been determined not by Haman's gods, not by chance, but by the living God according to his covenant with Israel. Meanwhile, in the Persian Empire, the annual Passover celebration suddenly has turned to sorrow throughout the kingdom, as the Jews learn of their impending doom at the hands of Haman, whose description now includes the title, Enemy of the Jews. It might as well say, Enemy of God. And this edict carries the king's seal of approval, for the Jews all appears lost. At this point, Haman seemingly has the upper hand. Both Mordecai and Esther have been placed in positions to be agents of deliverance. However, the problem is they can't see what's ahead. And it's interesting to note that both Haman and Mordecai have come to their positions through injustice and the wickedness of others. At the same time, both have made decisions to live in Persian court and adapt to the surrounding culture. We, too, often are victims of flawed decision-making and unchosen circumstances. Yet, God's providence moves through both in His own good time. Remember, it takes more than a decade for the story of Esther to reach its conclusion. We've encouraged all of you to read it, and we've said it takes about a half an hour to 45 minutes, and you read it, and you're like, well, that's nice, boom, 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 boom. Yeah, that's not how my life works. And it's not how their lives work either. Interestingly, the Persian Empire was known as a tolerant place. I wonder if they had coexist banners hanging throughout the kingdom. Maybe. Maybe. Persia was also tolerant, so tolerant, that after it conquered Babylon, it allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem and even finance the rebuilding of the city. What could possibly go wrong for God's people in that culture? Sounds pretty sweet. But then as now, there are forces at work in the world determined to destroy God's people and thwart God's promises. God's people exist in a seemingly fragile place as we live under worldly leaders. How fragile? Well, Look at this story. We have a conflict between two individuals that has threatened the existence of a whole nation. The nation of God's people. Throughout history, the world has been a dangerous place where it is not, nor will it ever be, in the king's best interest to tolerate God's people. Karen Jobes writes this An assault on God's covenant people at any time in human history is really an attack on the authority, power, and character of God Himself. Although neither God nor Satan is mentioned in the book of Esther, there is a force at work directing the mighty power of Persia against God's people. It is a force that demands to be respected and honored, a force that is willing to destroy those who refuse. However, an even greater power is concurrently at work protecting, preserving, and saving the Jews from destruction. Now, here in 21st century America, we like to think that careful financial planning, healthy eating and exercise, and biblical parenting, through those things, we can control our lives and the lives of our family and how that will unfold. And most of the time... Most of the time that strategy works. But all of us can look back on our lives and point to times when things went off script. It's in those times that our sense of being in control is revealed to be an illusion. We're often caught up in situations beyond our control. How do we respond in those moments? Do we rage like Haman and issue edicts to be carried out within our own little kingdoms? I know I do. I want things to go according to my plans. My plans are good. They're wise. They're informed. I read a lot. I know stuff. In short, my plans make sense by my own way of reckoning. But what if God has other plans? Better plans for my ultimate good. Plans to take me out of my comfort zone. Plans to that feel like... An existential threat. What if that's in God's plans? What if this life that I've been given isn't really about me at all? As in Esther, life is full of little decisions and circumstances that lead to various outcomes later on. Outcomes we can't foresee or predict. Only God knows what will happen before it begins. Nothing catches him by surprise. In Esther, we see a demonstration of divine providence. God works in his own time, in the details, in the coincidences, in the human decisions, no matter how sound or flawed, to bring glory to himself. We might not always appreciate how God works, especially when it involves moving us out of our comfort zones, especially when it takes time. But we need to trust that he's good. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Injustice hurts. But the stories of Esther and Mordecai, in those stories, we find a reason to endure injustices. We find divine reason. Whether or not Esther and Mordecai were in any way connected to a faithful walk with God, we can't be certain. Remember, God's not mentioned. But both endured. Mordecai's saving of the king being overlooked and Esther being snatched from her daily life and forced into the king's harem. Those aren't just. Both were treated unjustly, but these disappointments became important in securing the good things to come. We can't see the end of things from the middle and we must walk by faith and not by sight. Looking back at a series of misadventures formed by injustices in his life, particularly his older brothers selling him off as a slave, Joseph was able to forgive them, explaining, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The same force at work in ancient Persia later stirred up wrath against Jesus through human agents who nailed him to a cross. But consider that those actions simultaneously executed God's work of atonement. Now, wrap your head around that for a minute. Evil forces were stirred up to seize Jesus and nail him to a cross but those same actions simultaneously executed God's work of atonement. Consider that when Peter and John were released after being in prison for preaching the gospel in Jerusalem, they joined with friends and prayed the following. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. They're speaking to God. This is in prayer. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Do you get that? We put Jesus on the cross, but God put Jesus on the cross. And he used the same context in which to do it. Again, Karen Jobs offers some insight. She writes, If it was not in spite of the greatest injustice and more concerted evil against Jesus that God achieved his work of atonement, excuse me, it was not in spite of the greatest injustice and more concerted evil against Jesus that God achieved his work of atonement but through those very acts of injustice and evil. What a mind-boggling mystery. God works concurrently through the very forces that Satan means to bring for evil, to bring about his perfect good. Again, he is never caught off guard, never taken by surprise. This knowledge gave the early church boldness to preach the gospel in a very dangerous context, And with the same confidence, God's people can face the powers that oppose them today. As we read earlier, King Ahasuerus gave Haman his signet ring and told him to do as he wished, placing God's people under an edict of death. According to Persian law, that edict could not be changed. The most powerful man in the world had sealed their fate. But you know what? There's another king living in Susa. Another king living in Susa. He's made his own decree. In Genesis 12, we find one of those edicts that links directly to the looming situation in Persia. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. King Ahasuerus' decree stands in direct opposition to God's decree. Whose decree do you think will win out? Similarly, Satan, the king of this world, has decreed our certain death. But that decree is no match for Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Our king's decree, triumphed in ancient Paris, still stands today and will hold throughout eternity. Unlike King Ahasuerus, our king is perfectly wise, just, faithful, and good. And because he is holy and just, he must uphold his decrees. And unlike King Ahasuerus, he actually has the power and authority to do that. Our king's decree was not made based on the self serving motivation of broken advisors. His decree was made in the counsel of his own wisdom before the foundation of the world. It's no reaction. A lack of honor given where it appears to be due drives the story of Esther. Ironically, it's the true king who's not honored. Mordecai and the Jews in Susa bowed their knees to another king. They signed on with the culture of the land and learned to operate within its constructs to worship the material wealth, power, and physical beauty. How does the king of kings respond to their brokenness? How does the king of kings respond to a people who ignore their part of the covenant? Does he blow off the existential threat? that's been made to their lives? Does he allow King Ahasuerus' edict to stand? Nope. The king of kings responds with faithfulness to his covenantal word and with unmerited mercy. Praise God. In reality, God has far more reason to act against us than King Ahasuerus had to act against the Jews. We haven't kept his law. We refuse to bow and submit to his divine authority. We consistently refuse to show him the respect and honor due him. It certainly is no way, in no way profitable for the king to tolerate us since we were born cosmic rebels standing in opposition to his goodness and grace. How does that profit a king? Not only that, but we have a cosmic enemy in Satan who stands ready to produce a laundry list of reasons why we should not be permitted to live. We don't deserve to live. He's our accuser. Our sovereign king rightfully could, should have signed our death warrant. Rightfully. But that's not how he chose to deal with us. Ian Dugart puts it this way. God has taken his own dear son, the one who is as precious to him as a signet ring, and has handed him over to his enemies to buffet. God said, in effect, Satan, do with my son as seems good to you. Let him be punished for sin, but let his people go. Destroy, kill, annihilate Jesus. For sin must be paid for. Plunder his few goods and distribute them among those who are putting him to death. Torture and mock him. Execute him on a cross. But as for my people, you shall not touch them. And in the eternal wisdom of God, the actions of one man, Jesus, now have redemptive consequences for his own people as they place their trust in him. There are really only kind of two kinds of people in the world. Those who have repented of their sins and joyfully bow before Jesus with humble and grateful hearts, and those who stubbornly refuse, instead, standing like Haman and Ahasuerus in opposition to the Holy One and his people. There's two kinds of people, it's a binary choice. Those in the latter category will someday stand before God to give an account for their sins which his righteous justice demands be punished. Their rebellion ultimately will be put down. In that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But those who have repented, those of us who have repented from our sins and trusted Jesus for forgiveness, we've already received his mercy. After sealing his edict, King Ahasuerus used his subjects to spread proclamation throughout his empire death to the people of God, death to the Jews. Similarly, as subjects to our king, we've been commissioned to spread his edict throughout the world. His proclamation of death includes the offer of a new life. The Lord's decree has gone out, the death sentence has been declared. Sinners are in need of a Savior. In God's faithfulness and mercy, He sent His Son to be that Savior, redeeming His people. God's proclamation is not the death of a people, but the death of the King. It's not the death of a people, but the death of the King. We proclaim Christ crucified to a world that stands under the, the, under the decree of sin and death. Let all the world know we were sentenced to die. But instead, the king died for us. Not only that, he rose again, defeating death, and has ascended to heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. Respect for our sovereign king need not be demanded. Haman and Ahasuerus required an edict for respect. No, respect for our king instead flows from a place of thanksgiving for his steadfast love toward us. From our position of unfaithfulness, we find a king who is faithful. From our position of fragility, we find a king who is sovereign. From our position of pride, we find a savior's humility. Let's bow before our king in prayer. Heavenly Father, what an honor and a privilege it is to stand before you, wrapped in the mercies of Christ, to go boldly before your throne, to be in the presence of a king who by all rights should wipe us out. We are so unfaithful, and yet you're faithful. We are so needy, we are so broken, we're so fragile, and yet you are sovereign. We are so filled with pride. And then we cavalierly often think of the Savior's humility. Pray, Lord, that we would bring honor and glory to you, that we would stand before a world and pronounce your edict, that you have provided salvation for your people and nothing, no powers in the universe, can for that we pray these things in Jesus precious name amen